the artifice of people expressing themselves through song and the artifice of being in a room with live people telling a story kind of need each other. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. This is the podcast of the long-running comedy variety show No Name and a Bag of Chips. In fact, No Name and a Bag of Chips is New York City's longest-running comedy variety show, and this is exciting. If you're listening to this on the date that it drops, that would be February 1st, and February 1st is the first day of the month that contains No Name's 30th anniversary. Our first performance was on February 26th of 1994. Here we are 30 years later, almost 30 years later, and we are still fucking here, man. And if you've been here with us for any part of the journey or if you're just joining, thank you so much for being our company. The voice you heard up front was that of composer Joshua H. Cohen. And Joshua H. Cohen was a regular presence at our still on hiatus, no name, presents the Uptown Cabaret series, uh, a series for singers and composers and had many, many celebrated people pass through our doors and that. But Joshua was the first guy we ever had as a featured composer, and it was well justified. He does great work. I really enjoyed talking with him. We'll get to that in a little bit. You know, thinking about anniversaries, and I think like our, our 20th anniversary was held at, at the United Palace, huge 3,000-plus seat, 85-year-old at the time, I think, movie theater. And that was a blast. And I was thinking back to the first time I ever performed on a big stage long before No Name. In spring of 1984, I opened for a show at a really big theater, and it was my fourth time ever of doing stand-up. This is how I got the gig. Someone I knew was promoting this concert, and they said, you do stand-up, right? And I said, fuck yeah. Because I had done stand-up three times. I had done three different open mics. Two of them were at Catch a Rising Star. So fuck yeah, I do stand-up. So would you like to open for D-Train? D-Train may not be as known nowadays, but for people of a certain age, especially New York people or, or dance music people, D-Train was huge in the spring of 1984. They were a New York City-based act, but they had nationally charting hits on both the R&B charts and the dance music charts and uh, probably the top 100 as well. So I got to open for them. <laughs> that was that was a, a weird thing. First of all, the show started an hour and 40 minutes late. I had nothing to do with that. I was waiting like everyone. When I hit the stage, the place was packed. It was sold out. And they were not happy to see me because they did not pay to see me. And since it started an hour and 40 minutes late, some of them, their high had worn off. They were coming back down and they were pissed. And you would think this would make uh, one very anxious if one had only done stand-up three times and now you've got a sold-out, pissed-off crowd. My mind was kind of on other things because while this was going on, across the street and up the block, I was hosting a fundraising party for a play that a buddy of mine and I were hoping to put on. We were young theater students at City College and we were hoping to put on this play and we decided to hold a fundraising party. And that was scheduled before I was invited to open for D-Train. So, no problem, right? The party starts, and then I go across the street and down the block to this theater to open the show. My buddy will continue to hold down the party until I get back. And then I come back and just enjoy the party. 
Well, about a dozen people showed up to the party. A half hour later, they were all gone. And it was just me and my buddy Dudley until it was time for me to go down the block and across the street to open the show. Well, I did that, and it started an hour and 40 minutes late. I will just simply say I got out of there alive. They were polite, or at least as polite as a pissed-off crowd can be, and I got out of there with my life. I went back to the party where my buddy Dudley was happy for the company. And, uh, you know, we spent a shitload of money to buy food and alcohol. We rented a sound system. The music was slamming. It's just me and Dudley sitting there with all this food and alcohol. So I did what 20-year-old theater students have always kind of done when presented with a large array of alcohol that no one is drinking. I forgot to mention that, yes, I opened for that concert, but there were two performances. There was a later performance which was even later because of how late the early show started. I escaped the first show in my life. The second show, I just I just escaped. I was a lot less aware of my surroundings when I went back there. I will say that I was very aware of the lack of laughs. I went back to the sad party, and Dudley and I just finished off as much as we could of the food and beverages and packed up and went home. I, I feel like I want to finish this with a happy ending, and the happy ending is this. Dudley and I did get the play put on. I acted in the play, he directed, and nearly as many people attended that play as did the fundraising party for it. So I guess in in the long run, you look at it and say, well, you know, it's all in the past and it can't hurt me anymore. The first part of that is true. Anyway, enough reminiscing. Are you ready for a good conversation? Of course you are. It's a great conversation with Joshua H. Cohen. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, a word from our beloved sponsor from the home of Bob the Squirrel. Get away to Green Bay. Get away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right, the historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin, where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast, this is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think, I'd rather not have the breakfast? Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious... Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They are totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So, what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. 
Are you originally from the city? Uh, no. So I grew up in Rhode Island. Okay. But I have roots in New York going back several generations. On my mother's side, my first, my sister and I were actually the first ones in three generations not to be born in New York City. <laughs> so I have some deep roots here. And it was, it when I finally moved to the city after college, it felt more like coming home than it did like moving to a new city. If you had family roots here, did you spend much time in the city? Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, when I was growing up, lived in Larchmont. And starting when I was 12 or 13 or so, from time to time, my mother would just stick me on an Amtrak to New Rochelle. My grandmother would pick me up at the New Rochelle uh, Amtrak station. And then her apartment was a short walk from the Larchmont Metro North. So I would arrive at her place on a Friday. Saturday, I would take Metro North into the city, get whatever Broadway shows I could get for TKTS, a matinee in an evening, and then come home. And then I would wait until I had saved up enough money and then do it again. <laughs> now, what, what age are you when you started doing that? I, I started taking the Amtrak to my grandmother's when I was around 12, although at that point, uh, she was taking me into the city. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't going in by myself. I started going in by myself in high school. The first time I took the train into Larchmont, was in 1990, a chorus line had just posted closing and I had never seen it. And my grandmother called and said, get on a train, I'm taking you to a chorus line. So that, was that your first Broadway musical? No, not by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't suspect. All right, so so at what point did you get the, the showbiz bug? Uh, so my first, not Broadway, but my first professional New York musical was the Fantastics at Sullivan mm. Street when I was five years old, and I was hooked. This was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Were you thinking performing? Were you thinking writing? Were, or just being involved? At that point, I didn't know. I, I just wanted to be involved. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be a part of it. For a while, I thought it was going to be performing until I came to the sober realization that I had no talent. But I had, al I had always also been interested in writing, and I settled on writing on my long-term major goal fairly early on. I also dabbled in directing. I got into lighting design in college, uh, which led into a fairly decent career for my first 10 or so years in New York in stage management and technical work, yeah. which is how I supported myself through grad school. But grad school was for musical theater writing. When you're at the point where you're starting to, to come in regularly, it'd say like, uh, you said about 11, 12, something like that? 12, 13, yeah. Okay. So are you on the, the track towards writing and composing at that point? I am, yeah. I, I'm writing these terrible, incredibly derivative shows on my Apple IIe. You know, everyone has to write something terrible before they can write anything good. Indeed, indeed. I'm, I'm hoping one day to, to get to the second part of that stage. To do that sort of thing at a fairly early age, that's, that's kind of specific. I mean, I, I don't know about where you went to school, but where I went to school, it certainly is not something that I would have found 
I, I wouldn't have found my crew via the Broadway musical, you know what I mean? Did you have people you could share that with? Not so much in uh, elementary and middle school, more in high school when I transferred to a bigger school. You know, I, I went to musical theater summer camp where, you know, I found my people. You know, it's funny, like I, I keep seeing people I knew from summer camp, you know, on Broadway and doing the thing. Uh, one guy who I was in a couple of shows with at summer camp and completely lost touch with afterwards. And then in 2003, he was entirely randomly cast in my thesis at NYU. Oh. And uh, we reconnected. He did a couple of shows of mine in readings. And he, Cesar Samayoa, he's the nicest guy, incredibly talented. He uh, is currently on Broadway in How to Dance in Ohio, which I haven't seen yet, but I hear nothing but good things about. When you're in high school, are you just doing the usual, you know, uh, the high school musicals or whatever? Or were you actually putting up any any stuff that you were writing at that point? Mostly just doing the usual uh, high school musical stuff. Uh, for, I was in high school mostly writing one-act plays. You know, I was dabbling in writing songs, and I would eventually stitch those songs together into a horrible, horrible musical. <laughs> but uh, but I was writing a lot of one-act plays, and my senior year, I uh, directed and produced uh, an evening of my one act, of my own one-act plays, right. which was, uh, I will flatter myself and say it was pretty good for high school. I, I have to include that qualifier for <laughs> high school. But uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, drag any of them out of the drawer now. So I, sh I, I should tell the, the signature theater that it's off? Yeah, please. All right. All right. All right. You try and give a guy an idea. <laughs> so you're, you're mostly writing plays and stuff at that point. Mm -hmm. Where does composing music come in? Do you, do you have the stories of, of, of being made to take music lessons or did you seek them out or I, I sought them out I knew from that first trip to the Fantastics that eventually I wanted to write musicals like that was the goal so I took piano lessons I did not work very hard at them and I am to this day a pretty aggressively mediocre piano player <laughs> For a while, I was good enough to get across the music that was in my head and get it out there into the world. And I studied a lot of music theory, mm -hmm. which helped translate what I was hearing in my head to what I the limitations of what I could do with my fingers. You can convey it to somebody else who maybe has a more advanced skill or whatever. Not necessarily. I, I don't really work with a, a transcriber. Uh, the, like, I, the people I know who do that, and it's a great way to work, and I have nothing but admiration for people who can do that, but that, I see that as really more for the opposite of my skill set. Someone who has the chops to play whatever they're hearing, but doesn't quite know how to write it down. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm exactly the opposite. <laughs> got it, got it. So you can write it all down, but... Yeah. Okay. At what point did the music lesson start? Uh, in earnest, I was around 10. So by the time you hit... Where did you go to college? Amherst College. So you, you went in full out as, as a musical theater major? Uh, 
Amherst doesn't really have much of a musical theater program, which is something that I was kind of led astray on when I mm. uh, did my tour there. And if I had known that, I probably would have gone somewhere else. But it is what it is. And other than that, I had a great experience there. But because it didn't really have a musical theater program, I was kind of able to invent my own way, which was both a blessing and a curse. It, <laughs> I, I understand. It was a blessing in that, uh, you know, I was able to really work on finding my own voice and, you know, do things the way I wanted to do them. And the Bad part was that there was no one who could really say to me, okay, kid, listen, you're doing this all wrong. <laughs> and I was, of course. I made a lot of mistakes and I, I had to learn from those mistakes the hard way. But it, it was in college that I wrote my first songs that I would still consider bringing back out. The musical that contained them was... An absolute mess. Well, perfect candidate for for the Encore series. Yeah. The oldest song that I wrote, that I've performed or had performed as an adult, uh, was called Forgotten Art. I wrote the music for it in college on the guitar when I was, you know, experimenting with like a, a folk singer-songwriter phase that blissfully for everyone did not last very long. <laughs> but this one song... The idea of the song was right. The music, I'm still very proud of. If you've heard the song performed in my adult work, the lyric is completely rewritten. But that's probably the oldest piece of mine that is still anywhere in existence, uh, in actual performance. Uh, it was uh, later interpolated into the Entropy songs, which was my required young musical theater writer in the city song cycle. <laughs> Please feel free to totally correct me up and down if I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I think you, you shared some of that when, when you did our thing. Yeah. Whenever I put together a cabaret in evening, I drew a lot on the Entropy songs. It, uh, that song cycle contains a lot of songs that I'm very proud of. Uh, it contains a couple that are Technically, I'm still pleased with them, but they are seriously out of date. I actually, uh, I had about six years ago some interest in a revival of the song cycle, and I pulled out some of the songs that I thought were out of date. I interpolated some other homeless songs that I was really proud of and uh, wrote a couple of new things. That version of the show, I'm actually still pretty proud of. Unfortunately, the uh, proposed revival never happened, so the revised version of the show has never been seen. But all of the songs in it have been seen one place or another. They've all been tested, uh, including a couple of them at No Name. One of the songs... I don't know if you remember the uh, CD skipping song I did where I was where I was making fun of oh, what was the song? Call Me Maybe. But hearing it where the CD kept skipping, <laughs> yes. uh, which, which was which was based on a, uh, a true story. But I I tested that song out first at uh, the Uptown Cabaret. What did you get your degree in? It was in theater. Within theater. Okay. And within theater, I did a double concentration in playwriting and lighting design. 
Uh, and lighting design was something I just stumbled into. I, I was very lucky to be able to get a work-study job at the scene shop. And uh, that was where I earned, you know, my pocket money when I was in college. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the work. I learned a ton. You know, when we were, you know, doing lighting, I just fell in love with it. I loved being up on ladders. I loved the instruments. I, I, like, I, I loved learning what you could do with lighting. And I loved being able to work on a visual side of theater without being able to draw, which I cannot do. See, to me... It sounds like your college experience was kind of maybe the right thing for you at that time. It is weird because I know, like, I felt I would have liked to to have had a little bit more freedom to create stuff that I wanted to in college. You know, it, it was there. It's probably helpful to have a balance of, like, really structured stuff so you are getting the person who says, oh, no, you should do this differently or whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you strike me as a sort who kind of went in with a certain amount of ambition and things that you wanted to do so you could kind of be a self-starter. Is that accurate? Very much so, yeah. So in in that circumstance, that's kind of a good environment for you, I would think. Amherst was a good environment for me, and I met the person who is now my oldest friend, continuous friend in the world, uh, literally on the first day of freshman orientation. Oh, Nice. For that alone, it was a good experience. No, if I had my life to do over again, knowing what I know now, I either would not have gone to Amherst or I would not have gone to Amherst but not majored in theater. You know, I would have done theater and I would have done music, but not as what I was there to study. One of the things that I have struggled with as a writer is, you know, knowing a lot about writing and and a lot about theater, but, you know, they always say, write what you know. Like, I don't know much outside of theater. And, the, and you know, the last thing we need I is guess. more inside baseball theater plays. So, you know, like, I never really had anything to write about. And I feel like that has been a thing that has held me back over the years, especially in this day and age, you know, where... You know, the people who are really out there just creating brilliant work and getting it out there and getting it recognized are people who have very personal stories to tell. Uh, You know, I'm thinking especially of uh, Michael R. Jackson. He was actually uh, my roommate for a year. Like, Michael just writes these incredibly personal shows that speak to things that he has been marinating in and thinking about for his lifetime. And it lives and breathes in what he writes. And that is a beautiful thing. I can't do that. I have never been the spill your guts on the page kind of writer. Uh, You know, like the my heroes are the guys from, you know, the late mid to late 20th century, the Sondheims, the Kander and Ebbs, later on Flaherty and Irons, they weren't there to tell their story. They had a passion for making theater and they could apply their skill and their craft to whatever story was asked of them. That is something that I find exciting and that I've always tried to emulate. And it's just... It's not what the field is looking for right now. I'm not complaining about that. I think it's a good thing for the field. I just, it's just 
personally inconvenient for me. It, it, it's a tough thing because in some ways, see, it's easy for me to say because that's not what I'm striving to do, right? But standing on, on this side of that, I, I always feel like it's, it's kind of an, an artistic truth and a constant that if you write what you're feeling and if you have the skill to do it at a certain level – the other stuff doesn't matter. It will find its audience. But that's easier said than done since it's all just theory and me talking out my ass. <laughs> I don't have to get somebody with money to back it, <laughs> you know. And that, and that really is the uh, the thing about theater, you know, like other forms of art. You know, if you're writing fiction, you can self-publish for an Amazon subscription. If you're drawing comic strips, you can publish them online. To do theater, like the, the script of a play is not the finished product. It, it's a blueprint for the finished product. To be a playwright and finish a play and call it done is like being an architect and drawing up the plan of a house and saying, okay, I've built a house. That's, that's not it. And making actual theater costs money. Doing it well costs money and doing it fairly costs money. You know, like I have been through the time in my life where, you know, I've written a show and I get a bunch of friends together and we put it up for no money on a shoestring and nobody gets paid. And in your 20s, when everyone's in their 20s, that's fine. But when you're in your mid-40s and everyone has commitments and everyone has kids, it's wrong to ask, ask people to work for free. If they're not working for free and I don't have a backer to pay them, then the work sits on a shelf. I get that. You know, you say, so well and good when you're in your 20s. Let's go back to your 20s. Okay. So you get out of Amherst, right? Yep. And you made some reference to being NYU at grad school. Yeah, th that wasn't right away. When I finished college, I had I needed a break from formal education. So I uh, moved in with a friend who had a spare room in her apartment on the Upper East Side. That's your move to New York. Yep. And, you know, I pieced together a living from temp work and technical work in theater. So I had two stories about that time that I like. My first real job in theater in New York was as a substitute props runner covering the actual guy's vacation at a production of Hamlet at the public. My big moment was handing Liev Schreiber a sword through a trapdoor. Then the other one from that year is I was a non-union overhire uh, loading in the electrics package for an almost holy picture, which was the one-man play uh, being produced by Roundabout at the American Airlines Theater, starring Kevin Bacon. So I am technically one degree from Kevin Bacon. <laughs> well, now I definitely got touched <laughs> When you first hit New York, did you have a plan? And I'm particularly curious about this. I have to tell you why. I have a personal reason. I, I, I'm always curious about this stuff. Is that when No Name first started, uh, first six years, we were a sketch comedy troupe. What we did, I understand why we did it, but in retrospect, it was kind of stupid. We would have these cattle calls and we'd, our instinct and our inclination was to cast people who clearly showed that they had talent, but were were kind of new to the city. They didn't have a long list of credits. We were like, 
we see their talent and we're going to be the ones who give them that opportunity to start to shine. What we didn't know and looking back, it's kind of a no-brainer. Most of these people were brand new to New York, fresh out of Midwestern theater programs, had no idea what they were in for. And <laughs> after a show or two, when they weren't making a lot of money, they wanted to know why they weren't making a lot of money. We pointed to the fact that we had lost money on the show mm-hmm. and they were gone. And most of them were probably gone from the city pretty soon thereafter. You know, you, you had enough savvy about New York that you kind of knew what you were heading for, I'm, I'm presuming. But did you, did you have a plan? I'm going to do this and I'm going gonna... to... I did not have a plan. I just knew I needed to be in New York and be able to see theater and marinate in it, I guess. And I was going to cobble together a living as best I could until I figured out what I actually wanted to do. I did that for a year. I taught high school for a year as the tech director at a high school up in the suburbs. I spent a year as the tech director of a dance studio downtown near Canal Street. At nights, they converted their largest studio into a black box theater, and that was kind of my domain. And after all that time of just kind of directionless cobbling stuff together and not really advancing anyway, I said, okay, I'm ready for more formal schooling now. And that's when I went back to NYU. Did you have your sights on something specific when you headed to NYU? I was in the graduate musical theater writing program. So it's okay. this this very specific self-contained program where you really have very little to do with the rest of NYU as far as we could tell. We might as well have been a completely independent school, except that a completely independent school couldn't have afforded those accommodations. For what it was, it was a pretty nice layout. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've had other people who have been through it. I know Michael uh, was the year behind me uh, mm-hmm. in that program. That's how I met him. Oh, okay. But it's... A program where they bring in an equal number of composers and lyricists and they spend the first year just kind of rotating you through all of the various pairings that are possible with, in my year, 13 composers and 13 lyricists. Actually, it was eight composers, eight lyricists and seven hybrids or something like Mm -hmm. that. Even though I wrote was already writing music at that point, I was in the program as a lyricist, mm-hmm. uh, partly because it was a lot more competitive for composers that year. A lot of the people who were in there as composer lyricists had actually applied as just composers, but they also showed a flair for lyrics. And several of the people who were there as lyricists had compi- has applied as composer lyricists. It was just weird like that that yeah. year. So you got to work with a lot of different people. Uh, I did. I did. So the first year, they cycle you through everyone in assignments of increasing complexity. And then at the end of the first year, there's a kind of matchmaking process where you pick one collaborator to work with all your second year. And then you spend your second year with that person writing one musical. With the final project, did you get to see it actually brought to fruition? Uh, yeah. The uh, the second year culminates with a reading of the musical. And I wrote my thesis with uh, Lavelle Blackwell, who is an amazing, amazing composer. He's kind of out of the theater scene now. He went back for his doctorate in composition, and he's now teaching at Berkeley. He's 
absolutely brilliant. But he and I wrote a bunch of shows together, some of which are not so good, some of which I'm proud of, but their time has passed. Mm-hmm. And one of which I'm still very sad never happened. And one that did actually happen. So well, two that did actually happen, I guess. We had a show that was uh, in the Fringe Festival. I mean, it was the Fringe Festival, but it got some very good reviews. And then uh, we, with uh, with a third collaborator, we wrote a uh, children's musical about the Montgomery bus boycott. That had a rather rocky gestation because it was originally commissioned, but then the person who commissioned it had a heart attack and passed away. Oh, geez. And then it was picked up by someone else. But after a workshop, they never really produced it. Then it won a children's playwriting contest and it finally got a production out of that. <laughs> that was a nice show. The book writer of that show was uh, James Armstrong, who I had been introduced to by a mutual friend. One of my best friends from college uh, was James's best friend from high school. And he said, hey, you're both in New York trying to write theater. You should meet each other. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And we did, and we hit it off. And uh, in addition to Keep On Walking, we've written uh, two other musicals together. And those are those are with me writing music and lyrics. So, so when you emerge from NYU, do you now have a, a game plan? Or? I I still do not have a game plan. Like when, <laughs> when like when it came to writing, I never had a game plan. Like it was always just keep writing the stuff, keep getting the stuff out there, and hope that something strikes a nerve somewhere sometime. I wrote a bunch of shows that had readings here and there, that had workshops here and there. I kind of had my uh, Anno Mirabilis. I never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, (laughs) I finally had that year in uh, 2013 where a musical of mine was produced off-Broadway and in the same year as my first full-length straight play was produced off-off-Broadway. I don't think I knew about that. Uh, It's called The 13th Commandment. It's about a uh, high school teacher who, in order to provoke debate and teach critical thinking, tells his 11th grade history class that the Holocaust didn't happen. Both shows were produced. Both did reasonably well for being off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. Both right. were nominated for a bunch of awards. And now, this is this your first big splash out, out of getting after yeah, out of NYU? Yeah, th- those, are my fir- those are my first real full productions. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, my last, you know, I, I uh, was expecting after having two reasonably well-received productions in a year that it would lead to something, and it never did. I was never able to parlay that into the next step. And it was around then when I realized that the next step was not going to happen when I said, okay, this thing that I've been saying is my day job I'm actually really good at that and doing well at it. I'm, I'm going to focus on that being my career now. And what is the day uh, job at that point? Uh, at that point, I was in the finance office at Roundabout Theater Company. I started off as just, you know, an assistant doing a lot of data entry, but I started really developing an affinity for building systems and building better ways of doing things. And there were several projects that they just trusted me with to run with. And I kind of 
grew that job into a bigger job. And in the wake of nothing coming out of Tomorrow and 13th Commandment, that's when I started to say, okay, I'm going to move on to something bigger with this. And uh, what sort of project have they given you? Around this time was when they started renting out the uh, Stephen Sondheim Theater. Roundabout had never really rented out their theaters before. They had always just produced. I kind of invented the systems <laughs> that translated the software that we had, that was which was really built for a nonprofit field, to what was considered standard for a commercial field. And, you know, that would take all of this data and turn it into what producers would expect to see so that we could do, you know, weekly box office settlements. And I actually learned recently that they are still using the systems I built, you know, 10 years later, which is a nice thing to hear. It's a great company and I learned a lot there. But I decided that when I was at Roundabout, I was working for probably the best boss I will ever have, uh, Susan Nyman. She taught me so much and, you know, she took a chance on me when I knew nothing about finance. It, it was a really great experience, but the downside for working for a great boss in a small department when you are an ambitious person is that no one ever leaves because they're a great boss. And if no one leaves, you can't get promoted. So I moved on to being uh, the general manager of the Flea Theater. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I was for six years plus at a company that did financial management for nonprofit arts companies as a kind of external CFO kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now I am uh, the director of finance at Paper Mill Playhouse out in New Jersey. How often do you have to be on site there because that's a nice little commute. Yeah, yeah. That's a great theater. It, it's such a good theater. I'm so excited about the shows we have coming up and uh, I'll, I'll talk about that if you want. But Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how I did mean, that opportunity come about? Responded to an ad on uh, New York Foundation for the Arts. You got to create a, a, a fake story. You, know, yeah. you re really give us yeah. some intrigues. Well, I knew this guy, and he knew a guy, and... Uh, but see, see, that's the thing. That's the thing, though. Like, that's a lot of why writing never really came to fruition for me. So much of building a career in the arts is about knowing people and building relationships and cultivating those relationships. And I could never hang. Like, I was just never good at just being with people when there wasn't an agenda. I flatter myself to think I'm a very good collaborator and people have a good time working with me when we have something to do, something that we're producing, something that we're working on. But once that moment passes, I just don't know how to cultivate those non-working relationships. And that's really where a career is built. I'm curious... Where in the timeline do you get married and become a dad? <laughs> no, because sometimes it's like, you know, which came first, the chicken, you know what I mean? Could it, 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 look, doing what you do with family responsibilities and, you know, and all of that, not a lot of time to go out there and schmooze. So I got married in 2012. We were in the process of closing on our apartment while we were in rehearsals for Tamar. And then Anne was pregnant at the premiere of uh, The 13th Commandment. Mm -hmm. So this is all happening kind of simultaneously. And, you know, I, I, 
I didn't want to bring that into the story of how I transitioned out of writing as like a full-time pursuit because I didn't want to be like, uh, having a family killed my career. Because well, that's not the truth. <laughs> right, like, right, I, right. And I don't want to be that but guy. But that's why, I'm, why I was curious because, I, you know, it's like sometimes it's just something that happens concurrently, but sometimes that's something that can make you also say like, well, maybe I need to reevaluate, yeah. you know? Certainly, you know, having kids meant I needed to be making more money than I was making because mm-hmm. kids are expensive. So that that's all happening concurrently. It's it's funny. There there was a time where it seemed like people who wanted to do their own things for like film, for example, would have similar stories to yours in terms of, you know, what needs to be done and making connections and reach but technology has transformed film into something you can just do. Yeah. You know, it's a question of what level you're doing at sometimes, but it's something that can be done where it's it seems to me that theater, particularly musical theater, is not something that's been changed by technology, really. And maybe it's even more. Would you say it's more challenging nowadays because the, the economics continue to get more and more difficult for that kind of a collaborative form, you know? Yeah. And and people did try to find ways of doing musicals in, you know, mass media, especially during the pandemic, you know, when there's a airborne, particle-borne virus, the last thing you want to do is people, you know, singing in each other's faces. (laughs) You know, there are some people who have really gotten into writing musicals for essentially the radio medium, for the podcast medium. But like, there's something about a musical that is just so theatrical. The artifice of people expressing themselves through song and the artifice of being in a room with live people telling a story kind of need each other. I mean, and there are a lot of movie musicals, but like, I I think it's not a coincidence that the most successful movie musicals are about the act of performing. Going back to like the Fred Astaire movies and the Mickey and Judy movies, you know, Mm -hmm. up through, you know, Chicago, where it is a book musical. But for the movie, they framed all of the songs as being imagined as performances in Roxy's head. And that's why it worked as a movie. I I really think that the idea of people expressing themselves through song requires that sense of performance that you're never really going to be able to divorce from live theater. I I agree. There is a very singular experience about having a bunch of voices and a bunch of music people Mm -hmm. all doing their things simultaneously in one space. Yes. You know, there's a very specific energy that you cannot find Elsewhere, you can find energies that are just as good but different, but th- that is very specific. And it's not something that you can approximate just because you've taken the same elements and filmed them. It's just not yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And and you mentioned the economics of it, and it's always been hard. Famously, you know, 80% of musicals that open on Broadway lose money. Uh, but it's getting harder. And, you know, th- there are all of these demands being placed on the theater industry to pay artists fairly, to lower ticket prices so that it's not just entertainment for the rich, to be less dependent on the largesse of the 1%, to get away from, you know, tried and true, saleable IP as the source for everything. And individually, 
those are all great goals, and I believe in every single one of them, but you do them all at once, and you have an arithmetic problem <laughs> that no one has solved. Are there any things that strike you as depths that could be taken in the right direction? I don't know. Like, the, if I had that answer, I would probably... Uh, be a Broadway producer instead of uh, <laughs> instead of the guy uh, managing the budgets for a nonprofit. I, I don't know what the answer is. It, it's literally my job to help figure out that answer, but I don't know. Going back to when you had the the play and and the musical both went up in the same year. Coming out of that, did you think that just from an economic standpoint, was there appeal of writing more? straight plays, which might be easier to produce. I mean, straight straight plays are certainly easier to produce. One of the reasons The 13th Commandment was easy to produce is because it takes place in real time on a single set, and that single set is the faculty office of a high school history department. It not only can be done in a small space, it requires a small space. Mm. Like, you could not put this play on Broadway. It would be lost on that stage. It needs a black box theater of no more than 99 seats. So that made it, I think, very attractive to producers. And, you know, I, I have written a couple of other straight plays it's something I enjoy, but musical theater was all my, always my first love. And I, I don't think I was ever going to completely walk away from musicals just because they're more expensive. So when it comes to collaboration, you've mentioned, do you have a particular type of collaboration that you especially enjoy? Are there specific roles that you normally take in a collaboration? No, I mentioned, you know, you know my three main collaborators over the years, I've mentioned James Lavelle. And, yeah. and Marissa. Marissa. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I have different roles with each of them and different ways of working with each of them. Marissa uh, is a composer. I write the lyrics and we write the book together, which is a fairly uncommon way of working. I know only one or two other teams that work that way. But one of the pleasures of working with Marissa is that she is very deeply invested in storytelling, which is why her music works so well in musical theater. So, you know, we write book together. When I work with James, mostly I write music and lyrics and he writes the book, mm -hmm. except for Keep On Walking, where, which was uh, with Lavelle, which was, you know, a three-way. Uh, and uh, then with Lavelle, I write book and lyrics and Lavelle writes the music. You know, it, it's a different process with each of them. I think I probably spent more time like physically in the room with Marissa than with anyone else because the, there was this central element of the show that we were co-creating. Mm -hmm. We're writing but, a book together. You yeah. kind of got to spend yeah. a little more time, time to get... I mean, I get there's a lot of ways you can approach it, but I would think that that would... In, be in, inclined to to be a more we need to be yeah. physically in the same room. Yeah. James and I wrote our last show almost entirely remotely. The main reason for that, honestly, is, you know, as I said towards the beginning of this conversation, I am not a very good piano player. And because of that, I'm a very slow composer. 
it takes me a while to find the music to a song. And when I'm writing music and lyrics, you know, it, I when I'm writing both music and lyrics, I almost never write a full draft of a lyric and then set it or, you know, write a full draft of a tune and then fit a lyric to it. it they're being co-created. Like, I'm not one of these composers who can, you know, just sit down in a room with a collaborator and create material. The pressure of that would just absolutely freeze me. So when I'm writing music, uh, I tend to do most of my work on my own, make a terrible scratch demo recording of me performing the song and send it to my collaborator and say, hey, what do you think? And then we, you know, get on the phone or meet in person and hash through it. The other collaborator that I didn't mention is uh, Lola Maltz, who uh, uh, we wrote uh, one show together. She's a uh, writer and performer. Um, one recurring theme of my career is writing songs for people to perform their own stories. Uh, so that's a lot of my work with uh, Brooke Ferris. It's weird yeah. coming into today, knowing I was going to see you. I was thinking about stuff of yours I've seen, and there's one song that I, I think I saw her perform at least twice. It was something that came out of working with you that had stayed with me. I can remember like one, like this is not a story dealing with oh birth parents. yes 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 yes. Yeah, because um, she was adopted, and it was about that experience, uh, it, right? It wasn't an adoption story. It was uh, she was uh, estranged from her father, and then reconnected with him as an adult. And uh, yeah, so the the first composer spotlight I did with No Name, uh, it was uh, I called it companion pieces. It was a bunch of songs that paired together, and I had written two songs with Brooke about. Uh, different phases of her relationship with her father, father. And, it, and it kind of, with her narration, uh, strung together in kind of this like little mini two song musical. Yeah, um, yeah and and she performed that as part of companion pieces with no name. And then Lola Maltz was working on a uh, one woman show uh, called "My Mom Is a Sex Therapist," which is the title tells you what it's about. <laughs> uh, and she had originally done it as a uh, kind of cabaret act with like her story bracketing existing songs. And uh, she decided that she wanted to try it with an original score. And I wrote uh, about a dozen songs for that with her. And she's performed that a bunch of times. And it's, uh, I'm actually pretty proud of that score. It's got some really good material in it. Uh, and then most recently, uh, the most recent projects I've completed, and this goes back to our discussion of pandemic-born attempts to do musicals in mm -hmm. filmed media, New Musicals, Inc., which is new musical development outfit in California uh, during the pandemic, started a project where they paired musical theater writers with veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces who had worked on telling their own stories. And they, they paired those veterans with uh, musical theater writers to create one-person filmed 10-minute musicals. And that's why it was a pandemic project, because you didn't need to, you know, have a lot of people in a room together to make these projects happen. And uh, I wrote uh, two episodes for them that, you know, where both my collaborator and my subject were 
uh, veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces. And so that must uh, have been kind of a crazy project. It was something I was very honored to be allowed to participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was... How did, they, how did everyone feel about the... The finished product. It came out well. Um, it came out well. Uh, the uh, they they've since done uh, a couple of live shows of some of the episodes, and uh, my episodes have been featured in those. Right. Um, so it's a really good project, and I'm I'm glad they're doing it. And uh, there's you know a couple dozen episodes out now, and I encourage people to check it out. So, what was the last time you set out? to write a new musical or, or play of, of your own? So I'm currently working on two projects. The big difference between what I'm doing now and what I used to do is that now I'm thinking of it, it is no longer an incipient career. Now it's a hobby. It's something that I'm doing for fun, for my own enjoyment, because I love writing. And it, it makes me happy to have, you know, something to work on and to keep busy at it. You know, I have no expectation that these projects will ever go anywhere. If they do, great. If not, oh, well. It's no longer going to be a major disappointment to me. Uh, so, like, it, I'm still doing it. I'm just taking a more realistic and I, I think a healthier attitude towards it. You know, like, when I was, you know... Doing this as an unsuccessful career, I was miserable. And, like, I got into theater because I love it. And I don't want to be made miserable by something I love. I want to enjoy it. The The real turning point in how I was thinking about it came for me in 2019 where um, – Oh, I, I meant I forgot to mention another major collaborator, uh, David Malamud. Uh, he's a composer. Uh, he and I wrote a children's musical together uh, that ha- that ran off Broadway on and off for two years. It had a national and inter- international tour. That show has done very well for us. Oh, very nice. Um, and we've also written a. What's that called? It's called Flight School. It's about a penguin who wants to learn how to fly. Oh, I love that. Um. And uh, and then uh, we wrote a, an adaptation of Treasure Island that's currently looking for a home. Um, but anyway, uh, so 2019 was the year Flight School was on tour. And I didn't earn a lot of money from it. I earned a couple thousand dollars. But, mm. you know, that's still, you know, more money than I'd ever earned from writing before, <laughs> um, at least in a single year. Um, and... That year, a couple of my one-act plays were accepted into playwriting festivals out in the Midwest. And, you know, from, you know, airfare and hotel and food and conference fees, pretty much the money I earned from flight school paid for my attendance at those conferences. The realization I had was like, if this is a career, I'm doing terribly. (laughs) But... If this is a hobby that pays for itself, I'm doing awesome. So that was kind of the beginning of the shift of that thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the two projects I'm working on now, uh, one straight play and one musical. Uh, the straight play is an expansion of a 10-minute play that I wrote about three siblings whose fourth sibling had been killed in a car accident 
and they sort of kind of accidentally kidnap the woman who killed their fourth sibling, and now they have to figure out what to do with her. Uh, there are and, a lot of ways that could go. <laughs> I like that in the premise, though. I, and, <laughs> and it was originally a 10, 15-minute play, and it was in a playwriting festival uh, last summer, mm-hmm. and the gist of the feedback from that festival was this needs to be a full length. So I'm working on that. And then I'm working on a musical about a group of Jews who organize a heist to try to steal back from the basement of the Vatican the ancient menorah from the that was looted from the Second Temple of Jerus- in Jerusalem in 70 AD which probably is not actually in the Vatican, but there's this conspiracy theory that it is. And so they they set out, they set up this heist to try to steal it back. It's a comedy, obviously. And I know you may have a selling point for producing, <laughs> you know, a, a conspiracy theory is very big nowadays. Well, and, and maybe that, not that particular theory. But. Well, well, and like one of the things that I'm so interested in is like, why do we gravitate towards conspiracy theories? Like, and I I think that like, ultimately the world is chaotic and nonsensical and a good conspiracy is a way of bringing together things that don't make sense and forcing them to make sense. And it makes the world more comfortable. Something that I've always been fascinated by is like, there's something beautiful about a good conspiracy theory because any piece of information that does not directly contradict your theory is proof of the theory. And any piece of information that does directly contradict your theory is part of the conspiracy. Exactly, exactly. Uh, So you got it covered. Exactly. For this show, I'm writing book, music, and lyrics myself, Uh, something that I swore many years ago I would never do again. Um, Why is that? uh, Because musical theater is a fundamentally collaborative art form and... There are so many ways to just go completely off the rails and go wrong. And it's good to have another person to check you, to bounce ideas off of. And just writing a musical takes so many different skill sets. And very few people genuinely have all three. You know, I've done all three. So, like, in that sense, I have all three. But, like, I don't. Really, I don't think I'm one of those people who actually can do all three well at the same time. But the nice thing about doing all three in this case is that I can write at my own pace and I am under no deadlines and I'm not disappointing anyone if I don't write a song this week. And, you know, you're not holding up the process. Exactly. It's, It's something I can do at a pace that I enjoy. Since you made your conscious decision to to change your the way you view your work, that was 2019, you said? Yeah. In the time since then, since you do continue to, you are a writer. It's not what you do. This is who you are. You're yes. a writer. And since you've continued to write, and I think that's a beautiful thing because some people come to the the sorts of realizations that you came to use that as an excuse to just stop doing what they do. So what I'm wondering is, 
do you see a noticeable impact in the ways that you write or in how you feel about the act of writing? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I cert- I'm certainly writing a lot more slowly now than I used to. You know, uh, I started this Vatican Menorah heist project in the spring of 2023, and so far I've completed three songs. There was a time in my life when I would have finished the show by now. Uh, right, um, right, right. But uh, I'm writing more slowly. I'm writing at a leisurely pace, and also I'm out of practice, you know, like – Writing a song is like any muscle. You have to flex it in order to keep it lively and active. And I wasn't doing that for a while. So, you know, it it is going to take me a while to get, you know, back into the rhythm of things. And I've accepted that and I'm fine with it. Yeah, I, I think the other piece of it is just that I feel like I'm able to enjoy theater more. Like, enjoy seeing theater, especially new musicals now. I've always been a very competitive kind of person. And there was a time in my life where, like, every show that I saw by, especially if it was by a new writer, I'm like, well, why isn't that me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't have that attitude anymore. And I can just enjoy things which is a very nice place to be in. Well, I was wondering if that translates in any way, shape, or form uh, what, into any sort of impact on, in your assessment, your the quality of your writing. I... It's a good question. Um, the stuff that I've written so far for this project, one of the songs I'm very pleased with... One of them is in okay shape. The one I just finished still needs work. It's harder work than it used to be, but I don't think that's I don't think that's a function of my approach to writing. I think it's more a function of getting older and just doing less of it uh, and being a little bit out of practice. I'm hopeful that as as I get deeper into this project, it'll start to come back. I, I feel fairly certain it will. I think you're. I I totally understand why you landed where you've landed. It's funny because when I first talked to you about this point in your career, it was a few years ago, like when you had just made that decision. I think. Yeah. I looked at you like, I know why he's where he's at, and it makes sense. But I think that guy's a lifer. I think he'll be back, you know. <laughs> and and, and I, you know, I didn't have any preconceived notions of, you know, how you would be back, like get into the game as fully immersed as you were at one point. But I was like, no, that's, that's really – unless it's too painful and I would get that. Totally understand that because it's you have to have a certain amount of – no self-destructive. You certainly yeah. have to be able to absorb a lot of punishment to go down that path. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, that's enough. I don't need to get beaten up anymore. At the same time, I also like, no, but that that's who that guy is. I, yeah. I, I think there's more ahead, whatever form it takes, you know. And I'm, I'm happy that you're, you're doing that. I'm happy that you seem to be enjoying it, man. Yeah. T- tell the truth. You still got a little bit of like, I know you're approaching it. This is a hobby. This is, I'm just doing it for, but it sounds like you got a couple of good ideas there. And it's like. When you get that good idea, there's still a little something like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, like I said before, you know, like writing 
theater is is making a blueprint and until it's on its feet it's not really finished so like if there was no intention of ever putting it on its feet i wouldn't bother mm. but it's more that i'm in no rush my hope is to finish a draft of this show you know maybe by the end of 2024 and you know just invite a bunch of friends over order a pizza read through it yeah, yeah. you know like I'm not in a sprint here. I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going for a nice leisurely stroll. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're taking that stroll. I'm glad you took some time to to chat with us today. Now, I'm, I'm in that awkward moment here. It, usually, when wrapping up or concluding stuff, um, I said, "Well, what projects are you got? <laughs> go, what's going on? I mean, what? How about this? Let, let's put it in a different context. Whatever's going to come about with what you're working on is going to come about, but." If people out there want to go to their devices, their computers, their whatever, and hear some of your work or or connect to whatever you've got going on, is there a place they can do these things? Uh, Yeah. So my website is joshuahcohen.com. You got to remember to include the middle initial. There's way too many Joshua Cohens out there otherwise. Uh, Not in our book. There's only one. (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, But no, like if you Google Joshua Cohen, you will not find me. If you Google Joshua H. Cohen Mm -hmm. in quotes, you will. My website is joshuahcohen.com. And there are links from there to demos, to my uh, new Playwrights Exchange page where you can read some of my plays. there's cast albums of Flight School and Tomorrow of the River that are available, you know, on Spotify and all the various streaming services. And uh, the 13th Commandment was published and that script is available for purchase. So. Oh, man. Very cool. Very cool. Well, it, 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 thank you for chatting with us. And please do me a favor. If there is anything to promote, any, <laughs> you know, even if it's just, you know, stage readings or whatever, please let us know because... Uh, you do great work, and, and I'm always uh, happy to see it. And uh, I will parenthetically add that uh, I think Alex and I are actually starting to get a little bit closer to reviving the Uptown Cabaret. We will come rattling your cage if we do. <laughs> you know, that whether or not nice. you respond, that's no, fine. But. No, I, I, I would love to. Like, that, that, was a, that was an enormous amount of fun. I, I, I loved that series. I'm glad you had a good time because I, I really felt like that was uh, – it was kind of a, 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 a unique little moment there. Yeah. And I, I, I'm very proud that that exists as much of a mess as that sometimes was. <laughs> we had never tried to produce that kind of a show before. And it, you need several parts in, in place to make yeah. that work. It was always good to see the work of you and and Michael Jackson, and, you know, and everybody who, who came out. It really it was... I think it, I think it was a really impressive array of talent that passed through those doors in those years, and uh, well, hopefully we can do that again. Hope to see you there when that happens. In either case, thank you for spending time with us, and and my love to everybody at home. Thank you so much. I appreciate your inviting me. I had a great time. Likewise. <laughs> All right, they're the guy who, in my opinion, has got it figured out. He's gotten a handle on this whole being an artist thing and, and living life. Uh, Joshua H. Cohen, it was great talking with him. And uh, keep an eye out. You, you definitely not heard the last of this guy. And uh, his work is always worth checking out and enjoying and supporting. 
So, uh, this podcast, these things don't happen unless lots of people donate their time and do amazing things. Most amazing is our producer and chief audio engineer, the one and only Grand Poobah, Gary Hardcastle. Additional sound engineering provided by Miles, Mix Appeal Blues Boots. Our opening and closing theme music is performed and composed by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. Tip of the cap to our production assistants, Jeremy Cuello and Stanley Recio. And uh, I, I got to give some credit to, we haven't come up with a title for her yet, uh, other than amazing. Uh, some research and other stuff to help out, done by stupendous Stephanie. And we'll come up with a, an official title by next month, by March episodes, I promise. So, before we send you off into that good night or that good day or whatever time it is, wherever you are when you're listening to this, we always like to share some music with you. We'd like to share a song that is from a past project of Joshua H. Cohen. It's a great song, and I have been remiss. I do not actually have at my disposal the name of the singer. We will get that to you in one of our March episodes, I promise. My apologies to the wonderful singer. The song is called Sacrifice of Love composed by Joshua H. Cohen. Until next time, my name is Eric Vetter. I love you all. You notice I changed. I can tell that you do by the way you stammer and stare. More neatly arranged. And I did it for you. You wanted things tidy, you know, down there. You didn't care for natural beauty. But even so, you did your booty called duty. Ah, the sacrifice of love. So I said, okay, I'll give waxing a try. It's just getting a different haircut. Came the big day. Stomach burns, mouth is dry. I called mom for support. She said, you're doing what? I said, lie, say it'll be swell. She said, honey, it'll hurt like hell. I said, well, that's the sacrifice of love. This smiling Korean woman took me your jean. I did my yoga breathing and I tried to just relax while she dipped a tongue depressor in a pot of melted wax. I lay down on this table made of metal cold as ice. She spread the melted wax on which was actually kind of nice and then rip! Oh fuck! And I don't curse. Her smile said get a grip. She said Brazilian hurt worse. Then rip! He better love me after this. I want roses kind of lingus. Forty years of wedded bliss.
it's not a big deal. A rite of passage, I guess. Something women are brainwashed to do. Whatever you feel, you at least could express some thanks for what I did, you know, for you. And I just want you to know what it is you're letting go. But so it's just the sacrifice of love.